Good morning. Happy Monday. I have Neuro Coffee in hand and it is perfect. All right. A very busy Monday. We're going to dig straight into today's Q&A. Um, this is with Ivan. It starts off as a pretty typical Q&A. We talk about knee position, connective tissue behavior, split squat, compensatory strategies. Um, so that's interesting. But I think the big takeaway here is to recognize the fact that performance is multifactorial in nature. And so when I talk about performance, we're talking about generalized movement all the way up through our, our highest levels of athletic performance. I think that especially in our industry, um, with a low barrier to entry, I think people get told stories or they tell themselves stories, and this creates a, a system of limited beliefs, and therefore the outcomes become restricted. This is why you have sort of like the, the, the turf uh, areas such as the people that are kettlebell uh, is the best activity or the best tool. Um, Olympic weightlifting is the best way to train athletes. And we have these sects that still exist when the reality is, is when we want to think a little bit more um, like a mixed martial artist where we say, hey, I just need the best tool for the job in this circumstance. And um, if we can get over these, these limited beliefs and we can start to recognize the multifactorial nature and we start to expand the lenses through which we are looking at things, I think we're gonna do a whole lot better. And so I think that's the big takeaway from today's Q&A is it's time to start expanding your lenses. It's, it's time to start attacking those limited beliefs and become better at what we do. So hopefully um, you will recognize that in today's Q&A. Thank you, Ivan. If you would like to participate in a 15-minute consultation, please go to askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com. We will arrange that at our mutual convenience. Everybody have an outstanding Monday, and I will see you tomorrow. I, was asked to, um, I would just like to ask a follow-up to that. Sure. And you were talking about bowstrings with the cowboy people and how the bowstring is on the inside. Yeah, kind of. I was you... just using it as a point of reference, but yeah. It's a, I mean, it's really good for visualizing. So that was yeah. cool. Yeah. Would you um, see the same thing, but opposite if somebody's knees were caving in? Well, would there be any tension on the bowstring under those circumstances? Well, not in the middle, but if you put it on the other side, or you can can do that. Okay. But, okay. Um, I see where you're going. Um, yeah. <clears throat> It would it would not be as effective because as as your center of gravity moves down and in, it would just keep going in that direction. Okay. You, you See, I've got, go I've got somebody, hang on. I've got somebody that's moving out towards an ER representation. Okay. I'm sticking them out there and I'm gonna pull them in against it and then release it. Okay. So where is force and where is velocity? Well, force is in the middle, velocity. Force is in IR, velocity in IR. is in ER. ER. Yeah. Okay. You see it? Yeah. So if I if if I if I tighten the bowstring and I push them more towards force, okay, and there's no spring back, they this is this is the difference. This is what we were talking about with Manuel. This is the difference between it's like the, the people that, that walk in with the so-called valgus representation, they can be very, very strong. They just tend to be less explosive because they don't demonstrate velocity because it's very difficult for them to move towards ER. So are they better at yielding? They are yielding, okay? A lot yeah. of the times already, 
Okay. okay. Right, because they are they are in a sustained position of constantly trying to to pull themselves out of that stance. This is why you see the lower arches in those people oftentimes because they are pushing just by standing up against gravity they are pushing. Okay. Okay. So that is a sustained duration. So when you think about somebody that's really fast and explosive, the the time at, at which they apply force is very very small. Somebody else that yeah. has to push for a longer period of time, right? They push over a longer period of time. So they are less explosive because they can't release the energy as fast. And so these are the people that try to muscle the activities, right? Um, have you ever seen uh, uh, like there, there are two types of vertical jumps, the really springy guy and the guy that has to push really, really long? Okay, there's your difference. So okay. one is more yielding biased and the other one more uh, overcoming biased. To a degree, yes, right? But again, you're looking at, you're looking at a, a lot of influences here in regards to um, the, just the position, the forces, okay. the internal forces that are gonna be uh, un, um, influencing this, okay? Um, so, so don't, you're, you're correct, I think but don't weight that as the only thing, right? Okay. You still, have, you still have internal forces to manage. You still have physical structure that you have to manage. You still have put positions that you have to manage, et cetera. Okay, but if you were to look at a really good weightlifter, uh, he would have a systemic bias of more towards yielding than overcoming just because of the rate of loading. Yes or no, it, it doesn't work like that. I don't think so. I don't think so. Not, I mean, not, not, a, a, we have to use sort of like the most accomplished lifters. It would be, yeah. it would be, it would be unusual to see. You would have, you would have a combination of factors. So like, uh, for example, yeah. if you have somebody who's a funnel shape, you know, like they, they, they have that upward bias, Yeah. but with the varus that would, you know, if they had that yielding capacity, that would make them a really good squat jerker. Yeah. You know, because um, you can you can drop down really fast, but you still have the funnel shape to stand up with it. Okay. Well, thanks for clearing that up. So mm -hmm. it's not that simple as I thought it was. <laughs> it, well, so so the, so here's the thing. Here, here's the thing from a learning perspective. It, when, when you think you understand something and you're looking through a very specific lens, right? A viewpoint understand that it's one viewpoint. And then yeah. the more ways that you can see it, the more solutions you can, you can create and the greater your understanding of, of, of all of those influences. Because it's never okay. one, it's never one. Thing. Okay, so in terms of connective tissues, it's not just rate of loading. You have other things that you have to look at to determine this seven magnitude rate of loaning and okay there's seven of them <laughs> and they're all there okay. they're all there at the same time to different degrees and different relative importance rates rate is the easiest one to see and discuss right because all i gotta do is pull out my silly putty and you can see the difference in the two right okay uh then okay. just uh, one more thing uh-huh um so 
let's say we got somebody in a split squad and I was thinking like if, if the knee goes outwards in the split squad that's because that's the the space that's available to this person so he has ER space and that's where he's moving but if the knee goes inwards does that mean that that's like internal rotation space that's available to him so he's missing ER or again is it not that simple? Um, you're probably looking at at an orientation to produce internal rotation into the ground. So it is a so lack it's a downward of ER, hang on. It's a so ER ER goes up and out, IR goes down and in. Okay. Yeah. If I see if I see something go down and in, that is somebody that is trying to produce force. Okay. Yeah. And so it's it, under under the circumstances that you're describing, where it's it's like it's it's a position that we tend to not like, right? Um, and so that's probably a compensatory strategy to produce the IR. So you'll see the the arch of the foot get closer to the ground. You'll see the knee track in. You'll see that side of the pelvis anteriorly orient, and you'll see the spine turn in the direction that the knee is going. That's IR. That's a systemic representation of IR. Like you got a lot of stuff in play there, right? But it's somebody that is trying to produce force into the ground under those circumstances. Okay. okay. Makes sense? Okay. Yeah, it does. Good morning. Happy Tuesday. I have neuro coffee in hand, and it is perfect. All right. Hey, very busy Tuesday. We're going to dig straight into today's Q&A. Um, this is with Zach. Zach had a question um, that involved connective tissue behavior, which is one of my favorite topics. And again, I still think it's underappreciated. We've been talking about this for a few years now, and um, I think a lot of people still aren't grasping the significance of the influence of connective tissue behaviors because that's how we move. Um, if we had to rely on muscle behavior um, to drive most of our movement, um, it would be exhausting, number one. They, they, they would be terribly inefficient. And then we would also see very erratic movement. We would be very shaky and, and very inaccurate in our movements because what connective tissues do is they, is they are tuned. So we use the Austin Ulrich principle of connective tissue tuning. So we tune our connective tissues to allow us to execute efficient and effective movements. So this is gonna be a really, really useful question. We talk about context. We talk about um, how that we're chasing an optimum versus the maximum of these behaviors, because again, it's very, very context uh, dependent. If you're interested in more information in regards to these connective tissue behaviors, go to my YouTube channel and then search on um, number one, connective tissue probably would work. Overcoming, yielding um, would, would be also useful uh, to help increase your understanding of how these things are influencing movement. So again, go to the YouTube channel and subscribe there. If you'd like to participate in a 15-minute consultation, please go to askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com. Put 15-minute consultation in the subject line so I don't delete it. We'll arrange that at our mutual convenience. Everybody have an outstanding Tuesday, and I will see you tomorrow. Um, as far, I was thinking about like connective tissue behaviors. Um, I'm getting tripped up a little bit with the idea that as like a general principle, if we're just looking at magnitude, like increased load is going to drive a stiffer representation. 
but then we're talking about like a power lifter, like a really, really stiff person, sometimes needing that load to get the yield. Yes. So I guess those, I'm having a hard time getting those two to like play together. Okay. Are ER and IR present at the same time? Yes. Is inhalation and exhalation present at the same time? Yes. Okay. Yield and overcome are present at the same time. We just have to look at where. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then we're looking at this from the, the performance aspect of a power lifter. It's like they rely on skeletal yielding a great deal. Okay. How much force do you need? If you're Wiley Coyote and you're trying to catch the Roadrunner and you buy the big Acme rubber band, how much force do you need to stretch that rubber band? What? Yeah. Now, other connective tissues, all right, that, we, that typically would be bouncy connective tissues that we just talked about with, with, with Alex, okay? Um, I need to make those really, really stiff because I gotta, I gotta make bones absorb a lot of the, the force in regards to the yield, okay? So how do I get how do I get that bony yield? Well, everything else has to be stiffer. And then the, this, the bones become the soft part, if you will. Okay. So I can distribute the yield through those bones. But let me ask you a question. Do I have the same extensibility in the bone as I do in like a patellar tendon? No. No. So it's still stiffer than it was if I used a lighter load. Do you see the difference? You don't have the same extensibility, so it's still so with the with the higher load, it's still going to behave more stiffly. I'm always increasing the stiffness under those circumstances, and then the question mark is: Is there a yield? There has to be. There has to be a yield, right? But where is the yield? Are they yielding it like a patellar tendon and Achilles tendon, like we would say for a jumper? or the yielding more through the skeleton because that stores and releases more energy per unit of deformation because it is a stiffer tissue. So, so if you're trying to drive the yield through the axial skeleton, that's where you might go with the higher load because- Higher need, magnitude, absolutely. Because you're, you're absolutely. trying to kind of pre-stiffen everything else. Yes. To get the yield yes. down to the level of the bone. Yes, yes, yes. Now what? What makes you say whether you like, I guess I, I, up until now, I've just thought like, okay, like measures or watching someone move, like this is where the site of compression is. And if I want to get expansion there, I need to yield in that location. But I haven't really been like trying to think about like the specific tissue that I'm trying to get to yield. So now how are we starting to tease out? Like, do I want like the axial skeleton to yield? Do I want like the muscle? Like, how do you start to figure out which yield you're trying to get? Um, it would be, it would be demonstrated mostly, um, in context. So let's just create the context of the power lifter that's squatting a thousand pounds. Do you think, do you think that he's got a patellar tendon that will store and release enough energy to lift that weight? Probably not. Okay. Yeah. Um, and, and so now I got to say, well, okay, well, what tissue would be able to, to support that magnitude? Right. And then how much force is it going to take to deform it? 
Okay. Um, now take one of your athletes that's, that's um, in a return to play situation and you're trying to make them bouncy. Okay. Mm -hmm. Do you want to work on your max effort squat? Maybe. Like, is it, depend, it wouldn't depend. Like, someone might need that. Yeah. But, okay. 15-year-old um, female volleyball player. Probably not. Coming off, coming off her first ACL. Right. And, and you're teaching her to, to, to bounce across the ground again. Yep. You see the difference? Yeah. Yeah. So, so for her, you want to teach her to, to, to um, elongate, yield, and then create the overcome in what would be, and it's not that she's not using her bony structure to do it, because I think she is, okay? But we have a, a much broader contribution in regards to the storage and release of energy. And again, all you have to do is look at the, you look at the, the uh, pain complaints and the diagnoses associated with those activities, mm -hmm. right? So basketball players, volleyball players, um, Achilles, patellar tendon, right? Yep. Shoulder, shoulder stuff, elbow stuff. Yep. See um, the difference? Yes. So that, that makes sense from a performance end. Like, so powerlifter, like uh -huh. they want the stiff connective tissue so that the yield comes from the bone because it can just actually handle the massive loads they're trying to lift yes, as sir. part of their sport. Yep. If we take it to the other end, like now this powerlifter comes in pain and it's it, like, we're, let's say, I guess to make this easier, let's just eliminate the performance goal. And like the yep. goal is now just to get motion back. Yep. That is where now this person, I guess, he, I guess still figuring out like, which do you want to, like, I guess I still get tripped up there. Like, am I going to use- Okay, hang on. Is he, okay. Has he already used magnitude as a strategy? Yes. Do you think it's the solution? No. So that's, now that's someone where you're, going lighter but you're probably and now you're getting the yield and other structures somebody gives you a black eye they punch you in the face okay and they come to you and they go look i got punched in the face can you help me with that and you punch them in the face did it help no no right so they're giving you a hint as to i need a different solution i need a different influence so i now i go back to my seven components of force and i say okay what would, be, what would be the most impactful thing here? If you're trying to increase joint range of motion, that's a muscle orientation problem, not the connective tissue. The connective tissue is secondary to that muscle activity, right? Yep. Because you can make them so stiff that they run out of yielding, right? That's basically what happens when you have those tendinopathy things, right? It's like everything, like you, you don't, you no longer have this, this distribution of, of force. It's a focal representation. So the stuff that was bouncy, bouncy, bouncy before is stiffer, stiffer, stiffer. So from, from a training perspective, if like you're, you're trying to train someone to be able to better access that storage and release of the connective tissues, the ultimate goal 
is getting it, I guess, to, to maximal stiffness with still an effective yield. Yes. That's going to give you, is, is that just happening through, so like, from like, a, if like, you're just talking about muscular strength, like if you're what? doing like, like if you're like the ability of the muscle to produce force is that okay. and like you're doing like testing like a four jump uh-huh do you main like do you get increased stiffness and better storage of release because you're able to hold on to more concentric orientation as you're awesome. descending so that's gonna you're, you're able to hold on to the stiffness but then up until a certain point, if you're just stay too concentrically oriented, now you no longer get that yield and elastic. Right. And then you would know, but you would know this because you would also see a change in the, the uh, access to joint range of motion, right? You would see the changes there. That's why you have to monitor these things. As you're, as you're moving people through a training program, you have to have some representation. So, you know, it's like, Ooh, am I making them are they becoming too concentrically oriented, right? Because you're training them to do that, but I can overshoot it and it becomes interference. So, so from, a, from a static representation on the table, you're, gonna, you're potentially going to see that concentric orientation. On the table, in the gym, pick your, pick your strategy, like whatever you're, I, I, I don't want everybody to think that they got to throw people on the table, right? For you, yes, because I, I know that's, that's part of your skill set, right? Yeah, it's very useful under those circumstances. And then, so hang, hang on a second. Um, <clears throat> you were talking about the tuning, and I always have to mention Austin Ulrich in this I because you hadn't shouted him out yet. <laughs> say what now? You didn't. You didn't give him a shout out yet. Yeah, there's this, there's this, there's a shout. Out. But but it, it, in all seriousness, it's like you know when when I'm tuning a guitar, right? The top the the big fat string is an E string. Right. And you talk about optimizing. So I have a little, I don't have the ear for it. So I have a little thingy that 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 measures the vibrations of the string as I as I pluck the string, right? And and it vibrates at a certain rate. And then that tells me whether I'm above or below the E. And then I turn the little knobby thing, and then that tightens and loosens the string. So I optimize to, to get the, the correct tone. Right. So it's so it's tuned to the the E right? That's what we're talking about. So it's like, yeah, I got to have the right force production. I have to have the right muscle orientation. And that's what determines whether I've got the right connective tissue stiffness yep. and where I'm distributing that connective tissue stiffness. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, last piece that I thought of just going back to the four jump, um, from a ground contact time, uh -huh. if you get to the point of being so stiff, that like you you've determined your past your optimal from like a like a performance and getting like not being able to yield and get that elastic return anymore yep i guess i can i, can, I feel like i can make both cases in my head in terms of what's going to happen to the ground contact time because i feel like it could get so stiff that it doesn't yield at all just comes like right back up but not very high so you get a shorter ground contact there you time. go shorter ground contact time but lower jump shorter ground contact lower jump all right Shorter ground contact time, higher jump. That's better storage and release, isn't it? Yes. All right. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. So, so again, so your, your, your field test may be the KPI that gives you all the information that you need. Okay. It, depending on where you are in the programming. Awesome. Yeah.
But that's why you do those things, right? Good morning. Happy Wednesday. I have Neuro Coffee in hand and it is perfect. All right. Well, it is Wednesday. That means that tomorrow's Thursday, tomorrow morning, 6 a.m. Coffee and coaches conference call as usual. Grab yourself a cup of coffee. Join us for some Q&A. These calls have been great. Um, I don't know. We're closing in on like 100 straight calls, I think. Um, so we've been doing this for a while. We're getting pretty good at it. Um, please join us. Um, these are great calls. Digging into today's Q&A. Uh, this is with Alex. This is a monster of a, of a Q&A here. Um, Alex asked a great question in regards to the delay strategy that we talk about during propulsive activities. Um, we're going to talk specifically about walking in this case, and we're going to narrow it down to a pelvic representation, at least initially. Then we get into some lower extremity stuff as to how the ER and the IR are represented, especially at max P, how these things become superposed, how the force is distributed. So let me give you a, a visual representation here real quick. When we're talking about the, the, the delay, if I'm advancing forward, so if I'm stepping forward, say with my, my left leg, and I capture the ground and I get into that early propulsive representation, this is going to be the sacrum moving back on the ilium. So I get the delay there, but as, as I bring the center of gravity up over the leg, I have to have a change in the, the sacral orientation. So now I, be, I went from a counter-nutated representation with the yield at the base of the sacrum, and then I go into a nutated representation as I'm approaching where I have to put uh, more force into the ground, so that's more internal rotation. And so again, I'm going to have the sacrum moving into a nutated position, but the delay is still on the support leg side. As long as that foot is on the ground, that side has to be delayed to allow the other side to advance forward. So that's what we're talking about during this call. This is a, a great call. You really need to watch it all the way through. If you'd like to participate in a 15-minute consultation, please go to askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com. Put 15-minute consultation in the subject line so I don't delete it. We'll arrange that at our mutual convenience. Everybody have an outstanding Wednesday. I will see you tomorrow morning, 6 a.m., Coffee and Coaches Conference Call. Okay, good morning. So does... The yielding from early increase all the way through middle until max P and then go to overcoming. Okay. Um, you got you to gotta say where it changes, right? Because I got a difference. I got a change in the orientation. So let's talk about the pelvis. Can we do that? Can we isolate it to the pelvis? Okay, cool. So think about, think about the, the uh, uh, pelvic orientation as I land in early. So I've got an, I've got an ER inhaled representation at the pelvis. That's a counter-nutation of the sacrum. And I got a delay strategy on the side of the, of the landing. So if I'm stepping forward with my left foot, I have a left sacral base that is in a yielded representation, correct? Okay. Yeah. As long as that foot's on the ground, it's going to say, what, what, what did you say? Sounds correct to me. Oh, okay. I, I trust you. <laughs> All right. So, all right. As, as I continue to move forward, okay, and I'm moving towards like that middle representation, which is going to be the IARD representation of the pelvis, which is going to be a nutated sacrum, okay, um, instead of the sacral base producing that yield, it's going to move inferiorly because I have a change in the orientation of the sacrum. But because the foot's on the ground, that side always has to move slower than the other side in a perfect world. 
So, so the yield is, is still on the same side, but its location, the way that the distribution of the yield um, is applied is what changes, right? So, go yeah. ahead. No, that, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Grossly, as you move through from early to middle, um, while the bias from location changes, is it still- It's sustained, whole? it's a sustained yield. Okay. It has um, to, like I said, so, so okay. You're, you're um, constantly slowing down, you're delaying that side yes. all the way through middle. Yes. Until you have to, okay. Yes, yes. And then it reverses gears. So, so, so you're, and again, this is pulling back the bowstring, if you will, right? That's the, my yielding action. And I hit max P and then everything spins in the opposite direction towards the release of the energy, right? And then that's the that's my my late representation that that carries me through um, the the re remainder of that step. So, yeah. yeah. So talking about the leg spring. Yep. Is it in early as you move through middle, like you get the sequential like tick 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 of the IRs as it goes up the leg. The tick tick it, tick. I'll take that. I, that I, I like that. Is that correct? Generally? I like that. No, okay. I like it. That's good. Um, because I draw it that way sometimes. You draw the ticks. I do. I, I, I honestly, I, I don't make the sound, <laughs> but I do draw it that way. <laughs> okay. So, is that sequentially going through like a yielding position of the joints to load the spring? until max P, at which point that it would reverse gears. Yep. But, but, but again, this is, this, is, this is the expanded perspective now. We have to look at everything as, as contributing to the yielding action, All right? Again, underappreciated. So there's, and you can, you can look for these. <clears throat> so there's studies where they, <laughs> I don't ever wanna participate in a study like this, where they put screws in bones, okay? And then as markers, and then they put them on like high-speed cameras and scans and stuff. And they have people walk and you can see the, the bends and the twists in the bones, right? I also have joint positions that will change. I also have muscle orientations that will, will change. And then you have the, again, just the, the broader distribution of connective tissue behaviors, whether it be like a patellar tendon or whether it be um, the, the, the fascia lata or something along those lines, right? All of that stuff is storing and releasing the energy. Okay. Yeah. So, so I'm just trying to connect like grossly through the phases, um, how the connective tissue moves. Um, uh -huh. and, and in general, like the whole, the whole leg is kind of, spirally oriented and it feels like it, it like corkscrews into the ir position and then spring springs out um so is, is the whole leg kind of moving into this like different connective tissue position as it irs and then you overcoming like the the untwisting of it is what allows the overcoming okay Always have IR and ER at the same time, right? Right. And then at, at the point of max P, everything is the same. Fair? 
sure. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> it looks like this until it looks like that. Yeah. So ER, IR happening at the same time. So, so here's the step. Ready? So here's the step. My foot lands. Everything starts to get superimposed. And then I hit max P and then they don't move. And then they go back the other way. Mm -hmm. so it's like a collision of, of ERs and IRs that slam together because at the point of max P, I need the least amount of movement possible. So I have to squeeze. So everything, everything does this. It interdigitates, it squeezes, and then it releases and expands in the other direction. Okay. Okay. So not, not quite what I was saying. It, it, yeah. I, I understand your representation. The thing you have to, you have to understand is that there's certain areas that need to, to have a, a much stronger representation of yielding mm -hmm. because that's the greater area where I can store and release energy. So where would we look? Well, we start to look at like an Achilles tendon or we start to look at like a patellar tendon. It's like those are designed for energy storage and release to a greater degree than some of the broader, flatter, shorter connective tissues. It's not that they don't yield and distribute the force, but where, think about where they start to distribute the force. The shorter ones, the flatter ones are the ones that are translating this force into stiffer structures. Okay, patellar tendon, big rubber band. Achilles tendon, big rubber band. The glute max attachment to the ilium, tendon's really small, really broad. Why would it do that? Because it's got to distribute the force into the pelvis, okay, which is also expanding and compressing, right? How do you, how do I get this, this big hunk of bone to bend and twist? Well, if I put a little teeny tendon on it, I'll get one little spot that'll, that'll constantly get pulled on, ASIS. Mm -hmm. And it looks like an ASIS. If I, if I attach a bunch of stuff there that pulls on that one spot, it gets pointy, right? But if I'm trying to create this distributed wave of energy that's got to go through this, I need a very broad, small attachment to distribute that into that structure. You see that you see that you see how this interplay is working? It's like it's like some of the stuff is gonna gonna lock together, hold a position so nothing moves, so that the all the movement goes into the big rubber bands where mm -hmm. I store and release more energy. But see, that's why we have problems too. That's why you get patellar tendon pain or you get an Achilles pain, right? Because I'm not distributing the stresses the way I normally should. I'm mm -hmm. asking them to do perhaps multiple jobs where I'm saying, yeah, I can't create the compression at max P anymore because the position is not allowing that to happen. So my vastus lateralis is actually staying in an eccentric orientation when I need it to be, be concentrically oriented to create the stiffness that I need, right? And now I pull unevenly on a patellar tendon. You see the interplay? Yeah, yeah, that gives me a lot to think about. What, what, but again, this is why diagnoses start to show up is because, again, I don't have this distributed representation of how things should work. It's like, okay, herniated disc. Well, what is a herniated disc? That's a focal yielding action that's taking place in connective tissue because mm -hmm. I didn't have a distributed representation 
through through all of the connective tissues that you talked about at the beginning of your question. It's like, if I don't get this distributed yielding action at the base of the sacrum and I get a focal yielding action at L5S1, now I have a herniated disc. Right. Cool. Does that help you? Yeah, for sure, yeah. Cool. Good morning, happy Thursday. I have NeuroCoffee in hand and it is perfect. Good morning. Greetings. So I was hoping you could discuss how um, like the insertion of muscles onto the capsule helps shift fluid to allow. Awesome. Movement. I love this. Snowville joints are awesome. Okay. Um, where does pec major attach? Okay. Not to the capsule, right? No. Okay, cool. But it does attach to the humerus. Okay. Where does subscapularis attach? Anterior capsule. And awesome. Okay. Where's the water? In the capsule. Inside or outside the capsule? Inside. Awesome. What is the chance that a peck can squeeze that water into another position inside of that synovial joint? Probably not that likely. It's 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 not a great mechanism, right? It'll it'll drag the humerus and then eventually some of the some of the the <clears throat> the the synovial fluid may change, but you get those people that, that get diagnosed with anterior instability of the shoulder. You ever seen those? Or I had a, a, a young female volleyball player come in and they said that she had, she had an expanded anterior capsule. Like they, so they, they looked at her on MRI and I go, Oh, your capsule's too big. When reality was, it's like, we did a little flippy flop of her muscle activity and we got all of her shoulder motion back and all of her symptoms went away and she's fine, right? Um, so when you have something that's directly attached to the, the balloon, if you will, of the synovial joint that controls the fluid shift, I am creating the compression and expansion directly on that surface that's going to shift the fluid from side to side that allows the motions to occur in the first place, right? So again, if I, if I try to use a pec as an internal rotator, if you will, like a subscapularis would be accused of being, I can certainly twist the humerus inward, but it creates, a, it, it's gonna drag the whole humerus forward, which doesn't create the fluid shift in the synovial joint. So the anterior shoulder remains expanded while I'm pulling the humerus forward. That would be somebody that would be accused, accused of being, uh, uh, having the anterior instability of the shoulder. It, because it's an eccentric orientation of subscapularis as I'm pulling the humerus forward. Do you see the picture? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. So, so again, what 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 you need is is the thing that is closest to the joint that manipulates the the fluid content. That's how movement occurs, and that's how you produce force. It's not the muscle 
It's not the muscle that's that's ever lifting anything. It's the fluid compartment that you're compressing. Because I can stack thousands of pounds on a column of, of water because it's incompressible. I can't stack a thousand, you know, thousands of pounds on a muscle. It'll it would be destroyed in a heartbeat. Right. So um so all all joints move on helical angles. Yes, sir. So, so how does the synovial fluid shift to accommodate that? So let's go to the wringing out the towel concept. Okay. So I, so twist it all the way tight from both ends. Okay. So, so it's, it's no longer, uh, it, it's no longer expanded anywhere. So we're starting from, from this point of sort of like a, like a max P representation where ER and IR are superimposed of the same thing. I'm fully compressed, there is no space, okay? And I got, got a hold of the towel at, at one end, right? Or on, on both ends. And I untwist it this way a little bit, okay? That's gonna create expansion in a very specific pattern from one end to the other, all right? I, torque it back down, I tighten it back up, and then I open this one, and it opens in the other direction. So now I have an ER and an IR. And so that's the interplay of the musculature around the, the, the capsule that produces the, the fluid shift that creates all of these cool motions. Gotcha. Um, so hang on. So kind of like, so if you, if you contracted the superior third of infraspinatus and subscapularis at the same time, okay? Mm-hmm. Bella, so far? Yeah. What direction would your arm move? Nope. Down. Uh, what, oh, no, hang on. <laughs> what direction would your arm move? Not the fluid. What direction? Oh, uh, your arm would move up. It would move up because you push the fluid underneath the shoulder joint and it lifts your arm up, right? Mm -hmm. Get it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Got it. Um, Makes sense. So at, as it, as it, okay. So as your arm goes up in the humerus ERs, you're getting somewhat of a more complicated fluid shift than that though right well yeah it's yeah. it's i mean it like you have a resultant it, and so so this is this is elements of of tuning behavior right it's like how much of each do you add in to produce you know these subtle degrees of of movement right yeah and then it, it's just a, a, a obviously a crazy complex um relationship that's going on there you know it's just like just like i said it's like as as you start to elevate the arm it's like different parts of those mus muscles are going to be more active to produce the position of the fluid right automatically because all i have is all, all my brain has to rely on is like my intention is to get my hand into this space and and then the muscles learn i mean i've learned through you know, movement since your birth that you do that automatically, mm -hmm. right? So, so if we're doing like external rotation with the arm at the side, for example, we're trying to get like the posterior 
muscle activity on the shoulder to shove fluid to the front. Absolutely. To allow for that motion to happen. So it's the only way it can happen. Yeah. It's the only way it can happen. Okay. So, so here you go, Alex, um, get a, get a bank heart lesion in your shoulder. What did you just, what did you just destroy in regards to what you just described? Um, I, I mean, so, well, that would either be the inability for the fluid to get out of the front of the shoulder or, or the humerus to get out of the front of the shoulder. Did you, did you sure just which. create like a permanent expansion? <laughs> yeah. 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 So does exactly. the fluid get stuck there or does the humeral head get stuck there? Yes. What's the difference? Uh, direction. So I got to have, I, I mean, one, one, one is causal. The other one's a result, right? Mm, okay. But either way, it, it radically affects like the rotational ability of the joint. Right. Okay. You ever have a, you ever have a patient with a supraspinatus tear? Yeah, sure. You ever have, okay. So a small supraspinatus tear, like, so let's say it's, it's, let's just say it's half a centimeter. Okay. And then you have somebody that comes in and they go, I have a two centimeter tear. Who has the best shoulder elevation of the two? Less tear. Why? Because there's more of an ability of the tendon to pull on the capsule and shift fluid volume. Right. It shifts it downward, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. That's why you can't raise your arm overhead when you have a supraspinatus tear. It's not that the muscle's not lifting the arm. Good luck with that. Never could happen. No matter how hard you tried, it's such a tiny little thing. But what it does do is it pushes the fluid content down underneath the humerus and it lifts the arm up. But if I don't have enough muscle to do that, I can no longer shift the fluid down. So the fluid stays at the top of the shoulder joint. And guess what? I can't compress the fluid compartment because it doesn't compress because it's water and I can't raise my arm up. So I can't overcome that. So when we're developing like strength, we're literally just like Shifting levering fluids. the humeral head off of a fluid pouch in the joint. All you're doing is pushing water around, dude. Yeah. And, and that goes for anything. Right. So we could go back to Ian's question at the very beginning of this call talking about knees. And it's like, where'd you push the fluid? Right. If I get if I get too much distal VL. Right. What did I just do? I just shifted the fluid such that my tibia ERs relative to the distal femur. That's a fluid shift. It's not the muscles. The muscles are just turning stuff to, to create the fluid shifts. You ever have somebody post-surgical, uh, post-surgical knee, right? Like, and you just get them like kind of fresh. They're still swollen. Mm -hmm. Do they have full knee motion? No. No. <clears throat> Why don't they hurts. have full knee motion? Why don't they have full knee motion? Because it's crammed full of fluid. Yeah. Right. So why, why do we look at that? We go, oh yeah, your knee's going to be stiff and you're limited in range of motion and because it's, because it's full of water. And then we look at somebody else's shoulder and we go, oh, it's a muscle problem. No, it's the fluid shift. You see it? It's the same yeah. rule. Good morning. Happy Friday. I have neuro coffee in hand and it is perfect. All right. A very 
busy Friday. So we're gonna dig straight into today's Q&A. This is with Andrew. Andrew's in a, in a, working with a tough case here. Um, he's got an end game wide ISA individual with, with some other potential health issues that can create some interference the big takeaway from this, though, is how you're going to start to manage this individual, what their initial needs are, and, and where they have space around them to move comfortably and safely. That's one of the biggest issues that you're going to run into when you get into these end game strategies so that space just disappears. They have a very limited area um, where you can take them with great confidence. And so that's the important thing to, to walk away from this with. Um, if you still have questions in regards to, say, a wide ISA endgame representation, so this is somebody that, is, that is, has a cylinder gravity that is so far forward, they really don't have a lot of space to move in, go to the YouTube channel. There are several videos on wide ISAs and the endgame strategies, so please look for those. And then while you're there, hey, go ahead and subscribe. Everybody have an outstanding Friday. The podcast will be up on Sunday, and I will see you next week. Mr. Green, the return of Andrew Green to the morning calls. How are so you? glad to be back. How are you? Man? Um, well rested. So, okay, so she's a female, wide ISA, like early 30s. And she ha really has a wide ISA, uh, like really just can't close. Uh, and she also has asthma, right? So she's just not getting full breathing. What? Do you, do you, is it, is it allergic asthma or is it induced by activity? Uh, it is. When she exercises, does she has to take a hit off a rescue inhaler? No, it, it's no. more like, it's more like she's li living puff to puff. Like she can, she's take yeah, she's taking, um, you know, the, like the maximum number that you can throughout the day. Um, so and, and then, uh, okay, yeah. So then, um, so she has a wide ISA that can close. Uh, and she also has measures that are fairly symmetrical and more of an ER bias, as far as I can tell, though I recognize that I should look out for the spine um, moving a lot on those probably. Yeah. But like, you know, like almost 90 on the straight leg raise on both sides. Um, full hip flexion, if, even if that maybe it's a lumbar substitution. Um, and then when she moves, she can't yield uh, posteriorly. And so the activities that I've found that have been good so far, I mean, she has basic struggles with like even chopping, um, is like a heels elevated toe touch. She's just like, oh, that feels so good. And uh, something like quadruped just holding it she's just like I feel like my chest coming you know really it, there's like some tightness that's just releasing um and then if we do something like a child's pose um uh she can barely breathe and and then the last piece of information that I have so far again it's only two sessions in is uh that she has like rock hard tension here just rock hard like like there's it it feels like she's been lifting heavy for years but she hasn't like very anteriorly oriented yeah yeah okay i mean so you so you're just dealing with with a lot of concentric orientation and and she's she has progressed through um probably almost um all of your superficial compensatory strategies based on your description right 
So, so if she's got like upper DR compression, then, then chances are you don't have a lot of space for her to play with. You're putting her in positions where, where she gets a little bit more of the, the anterior expansion based on your description. And then that's what starts to make her feel good, right? So like the, the quadruped is gonna give her a little bit of, of anterior expansion under the circumstance, okay? Yep, yep. Um, it also um, may allow her, her belly to expand a little bit more in that position. So again, you're giving her space to create some, some diaphragm movement, yeah. but, it's not, but it's not an exhaled representation, okay? You're just giving her a little bit more space to, to move her, her guts forward and it allows her to take a deeper breath. So, and then you put, her in a, you put her in a position where she can't expand her belly. So the child's pose versus the, the quadruped is a little bit of a tell for you. It's like mm. you compress her belly, right? And you give her a, a position that would give her posterior expansion, which she does not have, okay? And then you took away the one place where she could expand easily, which was her belly, and now she can't breathe. Huh, okay. You see it? Uh, somewhat, yeah. Yeah. So you've got to get you've got to get her rib cage to move because she's she doesn't have enough diaphragmatic excursion. So so let me throw this out as a uh, a representation. So um, when you when you have asthma, okay, the biggest challenge um, when you have asthma is getting air out. So you're always full. And then you, you're trying to get air in on top of it. What position is she in almost all of the time based on her compensatory strategy? If she's wide. Uh, I mean, inhale, lower rib cage. She's used, yeah. yeah. So she's using a compensatory inhalation strategy. Okay. And then she can't get air out. So she has to take a hit of her inhaler to create an artificial expansion, chemical, right? The chemical influence gives her some expansion. You put her in all fours, what does she say? Oh, this is so much better because you gave her anterior expansion of her belly, which allowed the diaphragm to descend just a little bit more and allows her to breathe in a little bit more. But, but that's not the solution, okay? That's a cheat, right? It's like giving a golfer a swing fault to fix a swing fault. It does work because it's more comfortable. It's kind of like, um, if you've ever heard me talk about like, like knees and things, it's like sometimes you go right after the knee to reduce the symptoms first, and then you can work on the strategies that are interfering with the knee behavior. This might be one of those situations where you go, let's do some quadruped, get you comfortable, get your breathing a little bit. But what you got to do is you got to get, you got to get the rib cage to move. You're going to have to get a the, mm. the ISA to start to, to move. Mm. So she, she's going to be a sideline person. You got to get her rolling. Mm -hmm. Okay, because you're, you're not one to lay hands, you've got to create the, the, the compressions for her, right? So you might even put like a, an Airx pad or something underneath her rib cage as she's rolling to increase a little bit of compression there. You use arm position to help her expand parts of the rib cage. Chances are she doesn't have normal shoulder motion, but if you move the arms around through space a little bit into different areas, you're gonna help her create turns and, and positions that will start to expand parts of the rib cage. So I guess my, my, the only uh, big loose end right now, cause this is, this is good. This gives me some direction um, is like, she has, 
uh, by measurements, she has pretty good shoulder motion. Like, like, I mean, it, it motion, like same with the hips. Um, and so okay. I feel okay. like I'm not just looking at spinal movement, but I could be wrong. Okay. So, um, you're, you're sitting in the chair. Okay. Yeah. Right. Okay. Put your, put your arms down and then scoot back in your chair and then flatten your back into the back of the chair. Yeah. Okay. All right. So you can feel your whole back pressing against the back of the chair. Mm -hmm. oh, don't lean back. Just push your back. Okay. In. Okay. Okay. Now right. yeah. keep, keep your arm in a straight line and raise it up in front of you. Like this. Yeah. Just now go up and make sure your whole back stays on the chair. Okay. Now arch your back and then lean backwards. Did you just increase the representation of your good shoulder motion? Well, definitely, yeah. Yeah, so, so don't let the position that she's being measured in deceive you as to what is good. Right. Okay. Okay, and so, that, so then the, the, the um, amplified hip ER measures are probably just the spinal flexion. Got yeah, it. most likely she's turning as you're measuring her. Yeah. Got it. Okay. Okay. Because yeah, they're they're almost at like 75, 80. Um, so that that starts to make more sense. Yeah. Got it. Yep. Got it. Yep. Yep. Yeah, I would I would definitely be be, you know, working on the turns now. So let's talk about where she has access to movement. Okay. So she's going to be compressed anterior posterior based on the fact, you know, your little uh, upper trapezius um, um, discussion there, right? So, so you know that she's got upper DR compressed, which means that the amount of space that she has in front of her is going to be minimal, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. So anything that would be above shoulder level in front of her is probably going to be a no-no because she doesn't really mm -hmm. have that space, but she does have space out that way. Yeah. Right. Okay. 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 So all your pulls, your pushes, your chops, your lifts, all that stuff's going to be in that space. Like, okay. So, so she's so going to be, meaning... she's going to be here. She's going to be here. She's going to be here as far as like foot yeah. position, knee position, etc. Right. Cause this is like her spaces are, are here and here, not there. Uh, okay. Did you see me? Look at me. So her spaces are, are, are here. Right? Yeah, yeah, diagonals, yeah. they're not in front of her. Right, right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So she's going to have a lousy split squat. <laughs> okay. But you might be able to put her in a really wide stance box squat, and that might be useful. Right. Okay. Cool. Okay. Okay. You give, that's... Her, you give her like a, you give her like a, uh, uh, you can do probably like a sumo style kettlebell deadlift. Right. To start. Okay. Just to give her something to, to, to work on and to do you're in a space where she does have access to that motion. And then you just got to progressively bring her in. But, but the way that you bring her in, Andrew is, is thinking about, about the the shape change through the axial skeleton, you've got to you've got to compress the pelvis. You've got to compress the rib cage to bring the ISA into a position where she can truly get an exhale and get more normal diaphragm movement. 
you get enough of that movement. If this is exercise-induced asthma, okay? And what I'm saying is um, for her, based on her level of conditioning, and I do not know what that is, but if her conditioning is exceptionally low, this could all be positional. In our first uh, hour together, she said, like, I've, I've never been able to take a full breath in. And what I had her do is She's I just had pulled. her. Well, yeah, I, I, exactly. I, told, I had her just take deep exhales. Uh, and then she was like, oh. And then, and then so what I had her do, because this was like before the holiday, is just, uh, it's just uh, five minutes every morning. Just, just breathe in for four seconds, exhale for eight seconds, and then just do that. Because I didn't want her to you know, move. I didn't really know how to move her yet, but, um, but she said that like, oh yeah, my day started out a little better. And, um, so yeah, I guess I'll keep you posted on is, that. Is, and okay. Does she yawn a lot? Nope. Does she sigh a lot? Maybe. <sighs> yeah. 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 Well, she, she, she has this kind of like, um, this, this appearance, and she looks very barrel chested, right? So that's the yes. wide eyes that can close. She's full. Um, She's... Right. Um, and then, and then you know, she, it appears that over the course of a session, her her whole like disposition changes from like like to like. So. So you're 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 probably doing some good stuff, right? Just hopefully. by getting her moving, because it, it's actually helping her get some of the air out. Okay. Yeah. Huh. That people people in this situation that that are already full of air, they develop strategies that allow them to exhale a little bit more. So people that yawn a lot, it's not the fact that they're tired and sleepy. It's the fact that they yawn because what yawning does is it tops off your inhale. It creates a stretch inside of the of the the rib cage, and then you get a little bit of a like so you go <sighs> like that. And they get a little bit more air out and then they can breathe. And then they talk and they talk and they keep breathing in 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 and they're talking and they talk like this. And eventually they just go ah, like that. That, that was actually, that was over. a really, that, that was a really good, uh, that was a really good uh, impression of her. Okay. So. Yeah. So, so because they breathe in more than they breathe out. And then again, they, they just have to get really, really full to create the, the recoil to exhale and then they can start over. And that's but what like her yawn is? They, they yawn, they sigh, they laugh. They laugh at the weirdest times. Okay, okay. You know, stuff's not funny, but they always finish with a laugh, <laughs> right? Because it gets air they're out. getting air out. Yeah, yeah. Interesting, okay. Yeah. All right, all right, that's more than I expected to get, thank you. <laughs>